Hey guys, I got a Christmas present for everybody. I'm making my book, Leaving Vegas, available for free as a digital download this Thursday and Friday, December 10th and 11th. Uh, I've put this out on my Facebook pages, and if you go into your Facebook and would share that, let your friends know that there's a free book out there for them, why I'd appreciate it, and they will too. This is the Kindle version that has the actual audio link to the book, so you can listen to Nick Savella and Tuffy DeLuna and Carl Thomas, Joe Agosto, talk about Lefty Rosenthal and uh, skimming from Las Vegas casinos. Now, you don't have to have a Kindle reader. Amazon provides the software whenever you download the book. Enjoy, and don't forget... December 10th and 11th, get on there and download that book, Leaving Vegas, How the FBI Wiretaps Ended Mom Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. Welcome into the studio of Gangland Wire. I've got a special treat for you today. It's Jack Garcia. It's Joaquin Garcia. Joaquin Jack Garcia, undercover FBI agent. You maybe have seen him on some other shows here recently. He's kind of making the rounds. He was undercover for a long time, even though he wasn't. Jack, welcome. I'm really glad to get you on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure and honor, Gary. Heard great things about you. (laughs) Well, good. I've heard a lot of great things about you. I've read a lot of great things about you. You had quite a career. We're going to get right to it. First of all, if you guys want to know a lot more about retired FBI agent Garcia's career, he wrote a book, Meeting Jack Falcone, an undercover FBI agent takes down a mafia family. And that will tell you all you ever wanted to know, especially about his infiltration of the Gambino crime family. Which, which I find uh, fascinating. He's a New York Times bestseller at the time when it first came out. I believe it was uh, 2010. Is that right? 2008. 2008. Oh, 2010, you were, you, uh, somebody optioned the screenplay. Now, I've got other people that I've had on the show and a friend of mine, they've had their book optioned as a screenplay, but, but sometimes that doesn't happen for a while. Well, listen, the key about getting anything optioned. And uh, usually if you write a book, you automatically get optioned. I mean, they have these young college grads out there reviewing, you know, what's going on and interesting. So they'll either buy your option outright, which is a big mistake. Yeah. But that's why it's important to get an attorney. My attorney worked it out that they own the option for a set amount of time. At the end of that time, they could renew it, but they'll have to pay me again. Otherwise, the rights come back to me so I can sell it. So the key trick is to, yes, option your rights, but make sure that you're getting them back so you're getting some kind of steady cash flow as opposed to them buying it and then put it away somewhere. And that's it. Your rights are automatically owned. Interesting. Interesting. That's that's a good good advice because I know uh, when you go all the way back to the old the music people that sold the rights to all their music when they were just barely making it and sold it out. And then, you know, eventually their career, they become hugely successful. Their whole music is now immensely valuable, but they've sold it away for practically nothing. So that's, uh, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Those guys are always looking 
Uh, the big businessmen are always looking to get an edge on the little guy. They're, they're worse than the gangsters that we know. <laughs> they right? are. So that's yes, why the key are. thing is everybody always get an entertainment lawyer. That's my advice to them. Yeah, well, that is good advice. So let's go back. Jack, tell me a little bit about you have a really interesting childhood, shall we say. So uh, tell the wiretappers out there a little bit about your childhood. And you are actually were born in Cuba. Yes, I was born in actually 1952. So that's kind of giving up my age right there. <laughs> You're just a kid, man. <laughs> I was just a little kid. Yeah, right. But when I was nine years old, we left Cuba and came to America. And my father, of course, had to leave a year before because he was working for the government. And the help of the FBI actually got him out of the country. So we got to America. We went to live up in Washington Heights, didn't speak a word of English, had no money or any valuables from Cuba. My father had been in the U.S. working three jobs, just trying to raise enough money to bring us home. So when we came to America in November, we saw a first snowfall. So that was a a treat from Havana, Cuba, you know. And then, of course, I had to learn the English language and it was tough. You know, I was always this big Mama Luke kid. And when somebody made fun of me, I defended myself. So when I finally mastered English well enough, they put me in the, we thought we moved up like the Jeffersons. And we went from Washington Heights to the Bronx. I mean, that's our moving up. So the reason we moved to the Bronx was because they had a Marist school there called Mount St. Michael Academy. And that's where I wound up going. And then, of course, after that, having played football, I went on to college and When I was a senior in college, we went to see with the football team at one of the away games or something, went to see the movie Serpico. And I was just instantly bit by the bug. I said, this is what I want to be. Picture Al Pacino, good looking guy, long hair. He had an old English sheepdog. He had a girlfriend, a motorcycle. He lived in the village. I mean, the story writes itself, Gary. It's like, I want to be this guy. And I said, this is what I want to do. But unfortunately, as you recall, back in the 70s and 75, there was huge financial crisis. So they were laying off police. And what happened is I couldn't find a job. And I applied for everybody. It was the FBI, then hear from them, then hear from NYPD, the state troopers in New Jersey, on and on. And I thought I was a viable candidate. I had a college degree. I spoke Spanish fluently. You know, I think I could handle myself. And I figured, nobody's coming to knock. So what happened a few years later, I'm watching Univision, the Spanish TV network, and I see this American guy speaking Spanish horribly. And he's saying, hey, we're looking for Spanish speakers. And he's butchering the language and we want you to apply. And I'm going, wait a minute, I made an application. How come they're going on Univision? Call me. So I called them the next day and they told me, listen, reviewing your record, it shows you weren't an American citizen. So I had to become an American citizen and then afterwards reactivate the application. But it took me longer than a lot of others in as much as I was Cuban born. So when I finally got in the bureau and I filed for freedom of information, I saw there was all these CIA documents saying in as much as that he's Cuban, the possibility could be that he could be an infiltrator. So I had to go that extra yard. And then finally, as I'm waiting, I did get a job as a police officer in Union County, New Jersey, as an investigator for the DA there. And again, because of my language ability. 
And just a year and a almost and a month later, the FBI came back and said, we looked at your background and we want you to come on board. So that's what happened. I started my bureau career in April of 1980, and it was a hell of a ride. Great career. Loved the people that I worked with, some of them. You know, yeah, that's, like, that's the way it always is. You know what I mean, Gary? There's yes. People say, yeah, there's great guys and they're assholes. I mean, let's be honest with you. But anyway, looking back, I really had a, I love it. I recommend law enforcement as a career, although we are taking hits right now yeah. with the media. <laughs> And the people, hey, you know, it's a sacrifice that we all do to protect and serve our community. Yeah, you know, I hear speculation about how well that these guys, these these cops, they won't do anything now because they're scared they're going to get sued and all that. But I tell you what, when you get out on the streets and you answer that radio call and somebody's hurt, all that stuff goes out of your head. You just go help do what you're supposed to do. I, everybody I ever saw, even the biggest jerk I ever worked with. When they got that call to that domestic disturbance or somebody, a you know, robbery or somebody that needs some help, they blasted there and they did the best they could. So uh, Absolutely. You drop everything. Because yeah. we worked in a task force in New York with the NYPD. So, of course, the signal is 1013. When you hear 13, yeah. 1013, that's it. You're going red light and siren and you do what you got to do to help your fellow officers because it's a scary world we're living in right yeah. now. And it's a career choice today. I commend those who pursue it. It's way different than your yeah. era, Gary, and they're way yeah. different. Than- Thank God everybody wasn't following me around when I was in patrol with a video camera. Oh, oh yeah, gosh. forget about it. Yeah, things forget have, about it. Yeah, forget about things it. Things have changed. <laughs> oh, well, we did the best we could, and, and the guys still do the best they can, and they, they're much more professional now than we were back then. Hey, I can guarantee you that. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? This is kind of like the big guys have been emboldened, and the abuse the police take and their extra things is something that it didn't happen in the past. And and it's kind of unfortunate what you see today, the disrespect, and also the management perspective, how the bosses on law enforcement side really don't seem to back up the guys as yeah. they used to in the old day. So you're kind of out there in the middle saying, look, I'm just going to do my job. I got to be careful. But I got people watching me here. And not that they we commit anything, any wrongdoing, but the fact that you have that extra added pressure of having a supervisor looking and expecting you to do something wrong so they could either fire you, suspend you, or worse, indict you. Yeah, really? Oh, well. Okay, well, let's start into with uh, with your career now. Interesting that you were a Cuban speaker. I mean, Cuban native speaker. And I, and I know that there's a difference in dialect, so you could pass as a Cuban, whereas you couldn't pass as a Mexican. You couldn't pass as somebody from the Dominican Republic, probably. You couldn't pass as a South American, for sure. But you would have been, you would have fit right into Cuban organized crime. And there was some back in the 70s. There's, I had a guy on, uh, David Shanks from the Broward County Sheriff's Office. He worked, uh, he has a book, actually, another guy ended up writing it for him about the, the corporation, they called it, Jose Miguel Batista. You may, have, yes. you may have heard of him, but you'd fit right in that. Did they put you into, because you had that accent and that language ability, did they take advantage of that right away? Or did you have to start, you know, the, being a brick agent and chasing fugitives? <laughs> well, the way the Bureau works now is when you start, they put you in applicant work, Okay. Yeah. Fortunately for me, and I guess I became the envy of all the other new agents like myself, 
Because I spoke Spanish, at that time, though, we had the issue of the Omega-7 and Alpha-66, which were anti-Castro terrorist groups. And then, of course, that blossomed to the FALN. So that's how I worked those investigations, because I did speak Spanish. And I was out there with the help of these amazing agents to try to develop enforce informants. So I really learned about law enforcement early on for some of these amazing guys that, and I was put to work because of that. And if you remember in 1980 was the Mario Boatlift, but I was so tied up with this investigative priority of the Omega-7 that were killing diplomats and bombing all through the U.S. and Miami and New York, that I stayed behind, which I think that they realized that this was an important assignment for me to do. So, yes, Spanish I used throughout my whole career. I mean, everything I worked was, uh, I worked narcotics, of course. Now, you're 100% right. The accents are different. So a Cuban could tell a Colombian, a Cuban could tell a Mexican, vice versa. So it wasn't that I went on and started trying to assume the dialect and the mannerism. No, it just would be that difficult. So what happened, I always played the role of a Cuban. And if you remember, Cubans were very big from Mariel Boatlift of being drug traffickers, and everybody knew their lanes. Like the Cubans were involved in Miami during the Miami Vice era. They were bringing in all the cocaine through the Colombians. So I think my being Cuban actually helped by working these cases because they knew that the Cuban criminal element was alive and well in New York and Miami, which is where I worked the most. Yeah, it was interesting. I remember this uh, interview with this copper from down there. He talked about how there was, you know, from all the way from uh, Miami, all the way up the East Coast, New Jersey, there was a big kind of a population. And then on into New York was a huge population. And that was the kind of the cocaine highway for yes. Cubans. Yeah. Well, of course, Miami is pretty much like you're back to Cuba. If you're a Cuban, you have to go there. That's our Mecca. You know, you have to go there. And then, of course, New York City at one time, it was Washington Heights. But then, of course, the Dominicans took it over. We're more now in in Union City, New Jersey, and in Weehawken. All of those areas are pretty strong Cuban strongholds. But you didn't see Cubans moving out west or anything. It was just like every, I guess, ethnic group. We all gravitate together because we feel safe and comfortable. And all ethnic groups, I think, are comprised like that. But yeah, the Cuban population that came here came twofold. They came during the Castro era. And then you had the 1980 Mariels, which a lot of decent people came. But Castro also opened up all the prisons and all the mental asylums, put them on the boats, and they came to America and totally destroyed it. I mean, if you recall the very big criminal crime wave where these Mario boat lifts and they were hardcore criminals. And then when they were faced with doing 10 years in a U.S. prison, what are you kidding me? They were in Cuba for 10 years. Yeah. That's serious <laughs> prison. Not in, You mean I get television and get to watch a TV show? So the Cuban crime element was really good. And I worked a lot of them and there was They were hardcore criminals. Yeah, we got the assignment when that happened to go out to the halfway house here. They were filtering some of them up through halfway houses in the federal system. So we went over to the halfway house and talked to the guy and made a connection there and tried to find out 
who they were getting in that came in on the boat lift and getting into there, and they would eventually be going out on the streets of Kansas City. I tell you what, they were quiet. The Cubans that came in were quiet, stuck to themselves, and didn't give up anything. It was really hard to tell. They were yeah. Uh, well, years later, Gary, you remember when the Cubans burned the prison? I think it was in Atlanta. Yeah. And yeah, this was because the president was going to send them back. And they said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Look, we're happy here in prison. We don't want to go back to Cuba. So they, in turn, actually burned it. And it was hostage negotiations. I think it was in Talladega, all of these other prisons involved. Well, I had a chance to interview all of those individuals that were the leaders of the Mariel, I guess, criminals in prison. And you should have heard their stories and you should have seen them. I mean, they were all identified with tattoos. They either had them under their lip. They also had little markings on their hands to symbolize if you're a stick up guy, if you're a robber, if you're a murderer and all of that. And a lot of these guys actually committed more crime in prison that their sentence were increased. I mean, like I said, these were some hardcore guys. And uh, the interesting story was one individual in there was a a Silverstein was his name. And he was such a bad guy that the Cubans, when they were negotiating with the FBI, they said, listen, we're here. We're not into killing people. We just want to stay in America. This guy, however, is out of his mind. So they gave the guy some knockout drug to give to this guy Silverstein, and he took it, and they dragged Silverstein and handed it to the FBI. Because Silverstein had killed a couple of guards. He was like totally, he was in for the wrong reason. The Cubans were going, look, I know we're criminals. I know we're doing this, but hey, we want to stay here. We don't want to go back. Interesting. So it's a lot about our prison system, right? Yeah, it does. I've talked to a few people who came out of that federal prison system. It's, well, it's a whole nother world. I mean, it is, it is a world unto itself. It's a whole level of subculture out here that we don't know hardly anything about. Exactly. So uh, let's talk about, I don't know, where do you want to go next? I, we kind of want to get into the mafia because that's mainly what this show's about, the La Cosa Nostra Italian mafia. I know you made some inroads into them, pretty significant inroads. You also, I think as part of that, you popped some, Bad coppers down in Florida is part of that. So I don't know, kind of start in that how, you know, preface it with kind of what, you know, what family you were working on and and how did you get in with them? Well, pretty much my, I was an undercover FBI agent for 24 out of my 26 years. So I solely worked undercover. Most of my experience came working narcotics again, because I speak Spanish fluently. But what happened along, I started working different type cases than narcotics. I mean, I posed as a money launderer, a transporter, posed as a drug dealer, supplier, et cetera, et cetera. Then I started working cases like murder for hire, police corruption, political corruption. I was involved with Asian organized crime. I was working Russian. Now, some of these cases I worked posing as an Italian guy, (laughs) but I was posing as an Italian guy to Asians. I was supposed Italian guy <laughs> to Russians. So that was kind of an easy feat, but it doesn't take much to do that. So what happened is one of the Russian case, the case agent of the investigations, this guy, Nat Parisi, who's from Kansas City, and he came up with this idea that he wanted somebody to infiltrate. And at that time was the Albanians. 
The Albanians had gone into a strip club, demanded extortion money, and they wanted to, I think it was to the tune of 5000 a month. And if they didn't get their way, they were going to come back the following week and start smacking people around. Well, the owner said, the hell with you. I'm not going to do any of this. So sure enough, the Albanians come in, they smack people around, break the bottles, do this, do that. And said, we're going to come back every week until you give us the money. So the informant was a pretty tough guy. You know, he was the street guy, knock around kind of guy. And then what happened is he comes to the FBI and says, look, you're not going to believe what happened. I get shaken down by these Albanians. Then the second time around, I get this mob guy walks in the door. His name is Louis Filippelli, who is now a captain in the Gambinos. At that time, he was a soldier. And he says, hey, I heard you had a problem with the Albanians. We can make your problem go away, but you got to pay us. So you see how they worked in hands and together. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen that problem, before. Yes, someone goes to the problem and then the other offers a solution. <laughs> but the yes. net result is you're still paying the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of a clever way of doing it. So what happened is we said, okay, that's when I came into the case. They wanted a guy who was older, a guy who was done on the cover work to infiltrate the Gambino family with this guy, Louis Filippelli, and the Albanians. So I paid them $5,000 to keep the Albanians out. They gave us all assurances, no problem, was recorded, blah, blah, blah. Everything happened. So now we hitch our wagon to Louis Filippelli and his crew. Now, soon after, Greg De Palma comes out of prison. Now, Greg De Palma is this colorful captain of the Gambino crime family. He used to own a place called the Westchester Premier Theater in New York. This is the place that existed before Atlantic City. It was the Vegas of the East. I mean, you had Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin, Dion Warwick, you name it, played there, okay? And it was a mob-owned place. And they were skimming just like I'm sure you know about skimming in your town. This is what they were doing. They were robbing the place blind. So what happened was Craig De Palma had been in jail for shaking another strip club called Scores. So he comes out of jail and he's now trying to reclaim his turf. Now, we don't want to hitch our wagons to Greg De Palma, because there were stories that his days were limited on this earth. And the reason for that, not to digress, the reason for that, when he was in prison, a guy that he straightened out by the name of Nicola Sorsa was not picking up money from the places that belonged to Greg and not giving Greg the money to his wife. Nicola Sorsa was a millionaire. He did not care about picking up 2000 3000 He wanted to eat free at this club that was on record with Greg De Palma, this restaurant. So Greg De Palma, while in prison, talks to a drug dealer who was in a wheelchair and says, look, I want to whack this guy. So the guy goes, "Okay, I could get some guy from the outside. Turns out that that drug dealer was an informant and he was recording Greg De Palma. Now, they bring in an undercover in prison while Greg is serving, and 
there, Greg's telling them they kind of want to put the guy away, get rid of this guy, okay? Now, what happens is Greg gets arrested for that crime in prison while he's arrested. And now when he comes out of prison, he's got issues now. He's got issues because he had a contract on another made guy, Nicky Lasorsa, who was a big money maker for the Gambino crime family. So we thought that his time was limited on this earth. We actually even approached him and said, hey, listen, you may have some problems. You were in prison. This is what happened. He goes, don't let the door hit you on the way out. He was a classic old mobster type guy. Anyway, now he's out there. We don't want to hitch our wagons to Greg, but our surveillance is on this on Greg De Palma and sees Greg De Palma meeting with the right people. He's meeting with other captains. He's meeting with the administration. He's meeting here. He's meeting there. We're saying maybe this guy's getting some juice or he's doing something to try to get his power back. Then within a couple of weeks, Louis Filippelli comes in and says, listen, Greg De Palma got his stripes back, which means he's a captain again. Okay. He got his stripes back. Now, you either want to stay with him or you're going to come with us. So we realized that that was a milestone. We wanted to hitch our wagon to Greg De Palma. And why, you ask? Because Greg De Palma loved to talk and we loved to listen. (laughs) So we went with the guy who told us, and sure enough, it was the right move. I mean, he opened the pearly gates for us as far as finding out. And all during the time that I was out there, I mean, I'm meeting with Greg De Palma, but I'm watching that front door because I don't know who's going to come in and maybe whack Greg De Palma for what he did. So all along, he kept saying, I actually went to, as I got to know him, went to see someone. He wanted to meet Arnold Scutieri and say, how do I make this good? And it was decided that him and Nicky Lasorza were going to kiss and make up, shake hands, and because of there was not going to be any dissension. So all of that stuff was brewing while I'm attached to Greg De Palma. Now, I have a question. How did you get first get introduced into him? Did you have oh, an informant? You had an informant that brought you around and kind of said, hey, this guy's okay. Right. I became a part owner of the club. Since we paid, I paid this Filippelli, I needed uh, to, to show why I'm there. Now, we created this elaborate story, Gary. And it's true. But when you go out there in the mob world, it's so different than the other than working the drugs because there is accountability. Like, who are you? Where did you come from? How did you get here? So all of those things we ironed out, we created this whole false identity for me that I was a guy from Florida. I was a third generation Sicilian that Mm -hmm. all of my friends, I was a kind of a, a drug dealer. Now, at first, I didn't think I would pass as an Italian. And I was ready to come up with like, yeah, I'm half Italian and half Cuban. But that never came up. So I wasn't going to bring it up. So sure enough, it was accepted. But I had to watch my P's and Q's. I even went as far as going to Florida and looking for a Mr. and Mrs. Falcone (laughs) at the gravesite. In the event, I'm with Greg or another guy. And all of a sudden they say, hey, Jackie boy. I says, uh, you're from Florida area, which that's where I was supposed to be from. He says, let's go pay a respect to your parents. Let's go bring them some flowers. Now, what are you going to do, Gary? 
<laughs> what are you going to do, man? You better have a grave ready. You better have it. Now, you better you not see, start uh, stammering. <laughs> exactly. So I would take them to this place, and the only thing I would hope is that the family of those Falcons are not going to be sitting there waiting, <laughs> saying prayers for their mispoint. So I had to be covered, and that's the amazing thing about undercover work. When you're working dope and all these dope cases, I've done over 100 major undercover investigations. That doesn't even include the buy bust that I have. There's never been any accountability. Gary, nobody in the dope world or any kind of world comes up to you and goes, where are you from? Where are you at? How are you doing? Who do you know? Who's there? there is none of that. In that world, is you're playing as an equal. You're playing like, hey, F you. Who are you? you tell me who I am. What are you, a cop? In the mob world, there is that accountability. There is that deference that you have to pay. There is that respect that you have to show because that's the way it's structured. So it isn't like, I remember many times, like at one time, for instance, Greg De Palma calls me up because I blossomed from just a regular knockaround guy to being Greg De Palma's driver. I remember one time Greg calls me up and he says, hey, Jackie boy, I got an early meeting in the morning. Again, this is why he was so valuable. I knew what meetings he had. And then I knew what the meetings were about because I was recording here. So, so he calls me up. He says, Jackie, boy, I've got an early meeting. Make sure you pick me up at 8 o'clock. I says, all right, Greg, no problem. He says, and listen, bring an umbrella because it's going to get rain. I don't want to get damn wet. So I get up in the morning. You know, I look out. I see a beautiful sunny day. I'm checking the news. Say it's going to be sunny today. I'm going, I grab the umbrella. I bring it with me. I go there. And another made guy was Greg goes, what are you doing with the umbrella? What are you, some kind of fool? What, what, what are you doing? So I said, Greg told me to bring an umbrella. And the guy laughed at me. He goes, ah, okay. I says, you're getting it, Jackie. You're getting it. And I go to myself, what it says is that I bought the umbrella because Greg De Palma told me it was going to rain. And in that mob world, if he says something, then it's the truth. Yeah. Because that says you know how gangsters work. It isn't like if the boss is the boss, the boss tells you something, you better bring it. Why? Don't ask questions. Just yeah. bring the freaking thing. It's a whole different world dynamic than when I was working dope and I dealt with some major cartel guys. Nobody put me or tested me or wanted loyalty or expected loyalty. It's just something that you have to do in that world. And it baffles my mind because all of these things in place you're still are able to infiltrate it. And that's because of the greed factor. That's because yeah. these guys all look at that money. I mean, yes, they set up the best part of mob world that I love is the friend of ours and a friend of mine. That was <laughs> part of the learning that I got because Greg saw me as this guy who grew up from Miami and he really didn't know the mob world. And he would say to me, Jackie boy, let's say you're walking down the street and I see a guy down there and I know he's a Colombo guy. I can't go up to him and say, hey, how you doing? I'm Greg Palmer from the Gambino. It doesn't work that way. We got to get another guy who knows the both of us make that intro. And that guy will go to him and says, hey, Greg, I want you to meet a friend of mine. His name is Jackie. That would tell him that it's just his friend. He's not with us. But if he said, I want you to meet a friend of ours, now you're talking that he's one of us. He took that oath. He is a made God. And these are these little things that are in place, just like all the teaching Greg taught me. He taught me things like, listen, when the boss calls, no matter what time of day, no matter what you're doing, 
you better answer that phone and you better show up. And that actually happened to me because there was a time when, remember the Nextel phones when you would have two-way talk? Oh, talk yeah, yeah. Right. Like a walkie-talkie. Well, exactly. Well, of course, I got one for Greg. So yeah. he would call me, and the first time he had one, he had a new toy. He would be on clicking, hey, Jackie boy, so-and-so, because he was fascinated yeah. with that system. So I'm down in Florida working with the dirty cops, and all of a sudden I said, Jackie boy. So I turned it off. So come back the next day, and I go, Greg, he looked at me. He was angry. He goes, who were you yesterday? I said, I was down in Florida trying to make a deal together. So he goes, how come you didn't answer the phone? I says, Greg, I was working. And he says, let me tell you something. Whenever I call you, I don't care what time of day it is, where you're at or who you're with, you pick up that phone. Because how do I know you ain't locked up? So yeah. you see, that was a, and I remember when my wife's mother passed away, okay? I went to the wake. Now, of course, I didn't want to tell the mob guys that my mother-in-law passed away because they would respect, would show up or send flowers. And that would be kind of weird if they show up to pay their respect and they sit there and it goes, oh, how long have you been in the FBI, Greg De Palma? (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, I didn't say. And Greg De Palma did that two-way radio and I went and answered. Now, why did I do that? I did it because I knew if I didn't, it would set me back. And my wife understood and God bless her for uh, doing that. So I learned a lot of the inner mechanisms, the things. But listen, all of these rules, as you know, better than anyone, they still break them left and right. Uh, You know, they cheat on each other. (laughs) They do all this. They're all many times that I heard Greg is, okay. we didn't know that truck belonged to the Bonanos. Okay, tell them you sold it, but tell them you sold it for 100. Apparently, they sold it for 200. (laughs) So you sold it for 100 and tell them we'll split it (laughs) 50-50. So loyalty among them isn't because... That's the nature of the beast. They're, they're criminals. So now, what do you I've, I've, seen, I've, I've seen that here in Kansas City where they're constantly checking on each other. I mean, they'd call each other in the morning, just say, okay, what are you doing? You know, where are you going? And, you know, for really no reason particularly, and then call from somewhere else and checking in, just constant checking in if they don't hear from somebody for a couple of days or if, like, somebody doesn't pick up or they can't find them right away. Man, the phones light up. Hey, you know, where's Vincey at? You know, have you seen Vincey? You know, he's supposed to call me. I've been trying to get him. And they just go nuts. I think at the time there was a mob war going on. But I think they're a little concerned about that. But they're also, I think, concerned that somebody might be going into witness protection or something because then they drop off the face of the earth and they can't get a hold of you. They want to know where, you know, they want to know that quick. Exactly. That's so common. That's that constant. I even know a guy today that is kind of in and out of that world, more out of it now. And, and he'll call me once in a while and he just because he hadn't heard from me for a while. He wants to see where I'm at. Yeah, That's like he wants to test me to see where I'm at. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, Gary, not only that situation to make sure where you're at or that you're not locked up, it's also about money. Because in my book, if you recall, in the first chapter, I talk about P.D. Chops. P.D. Yeah. Chops was put in Greg the Palmer's crew, but he was never reporting. Now, Greg De Palma is not a dummy. He knows Petey Chop had a successful bookmaking and Shylock business. So now, what does that tell you? Is in that world, to operate in that world, as you know, it's all about money kicking up. Money never flows down. So if Petey Chops is making money, that means Greg is not making money. Because technically, there should be tribute payments. There should be some money flowing up. 
So that was what he was concerned about. So, of course, when he got information about it, I wound up going to Bloomingdale's and this guy, Robert Vaccaro, soldier, hit this guy over the head, cracked his head, dropped him down. Then he was going to stab him. I mean, all of the worst things. And it was all about the money. It wasn't Greg could care less about Petey Chops, but he loves what Petey Chop was doing because the money flow is so important. So besides you not being locked up, if you're not reporting, the boss doesn't know what deals you're doing. Are you making money? And if you're making money, why am I not being greased? Yeah. I remember driving Greg around, picking up money from this guy, that guy. He's loaded up in his coat pockets, his back pockets, and his front pocket. Then we go out. He says, Jackie, boy, I'm hurting. You got a hunch? And I go, what do you mean? I'm saying, I need a hunch. I got to go buy some dinner for the wife. I'm saying to myself, this son of a bitch, he must have about 30 grand on his pockets. Yeah. And he's telling me he's broke. <laughs> that's the nature of the beast. Yeah. They're always crying for the money. <laughs> money is their whole thing. It's all about. And what set Greg apart from all the other mobsters and why people say, how did this guy survive the mob where he talked so much when he got exposed and all that? Because Greg even told me, he says, and I don't know whether... He was trying to get me to do this, but he says to me, look, one thing I learned in this life is always kick up a lot of money to the bosses. You never know when you're going to need them. Yeah. Okay. And it's true. So maybe another guy makes a score of a hundred, gives 10, 20 grand. Greg will give 50%. Hmm. Why? Because he knows, listen, that's 50%. I'm giving him 50 G's, but he's going to remember that. Now, I'm going to be the good student. I'm going to have that little star in my helmet. And that's what it's all about. So Greg played that. And let me tell you, I think he played it so well that he was able to live not only with getting a murder contract on Nikki LaSorsa, not only for running his mouth like he did to capture the arrest of all these other guys, and also the fact that bringing me into it. So I think that was his philosophy. It wasn't money for me, but I'll do the right thing the way it's supposed to be in that life and kick money up because they're going to remember who I am. And it's going to show me as a powerful moneymaker, which yeah. is what it's all about being an earner in that world. I guess that cost the FBI a lot of money. <laughs> Keep money flowing through you up to him. Well, you know, fortunately for us, we had the seizures on forfeiture. So yeah. all of these watches, mink coats and TVs yeah. and stuff that we were able to yeah. serve it, I would go in. See, I always gave the illusion of having committed crimes. So I would go in and say, hey, Greg, I got some guys down in uh, Miami that just made a score of these Rolex president watches. What do you think? So he looked at these watches. They know they're like 17, 20 grand. Yeah. Just, uh, just give me 3,500, 4,000. He, first of all, he never gave me the money. He would say, you give it to watch. You give it to somebody to sell for eight grand. Mm-hmm. Of course, he makes his money, then he pays me my 35. But you see, he saw me as this money maker. Now, if I went in there, Gary, as this jovial, happy-go-lucky, telling stories and all that, I'd be thrown on my ass or wind yeah. up in the trunk of a car. They don't care about that. They care about a guy who's going to make money. That's all it is. That's what that whole organization is all about. How did you end up taking down De Palma and the people around him? I mean, it had to be more based on his conversation, but his conversation that you recorded is huge. Kind of what was the thrust in the end of the case? Well, in my book, I really show my anger in the decisions 
basically saying that it was very short-sighted yeah. on the Bureau's part because we got to a level where I could be present in these meetings. I could maybe introduce other undercover agents throughout the country with setting up scams and identify other mob guys. So it was decided, much to my opposition, as well as a lot of the United States attorneys and a lot of it, but the FBI managers said, well, we got the boss, we got the underboss, we identified a hierarchy, we identified these guys that we never heard. You never know what could be, they could die. And they decided to prematurely shut this case. Now, there was that 60-minute report that says that they feared that it was going to be retribution because at Bloomingdale's, I didn't beat up and jump on Greg. But listen, I got over that because even though there was a beating, I prevented the guy from being killed because we're in the business of preventing crime, not creating crime. (laughs) So I had to make sure this guy wasn't going to get stabbed in the eye. So, but anyway, they decided to end it. And I voiced my opinion. So did the others. And they stopped the case and simply went out there at, actually, Robert Vaccaro and I had worked it out that we were going to go to Italy to meet some of the people that he knew from the pizza connection. And Mm -hmm. he was all excited. We said, I'll send the car to get you at 6 a.m. And of course, it was the FBI that came at 6. Greg De Palma was also arrested. And at the end, they were the first wave. I think there was 32 mobsters and associates that were taken down, including Arnold Scutieri, who was the acting boss, Tony McGalley, who was the underboss, and a slew of guys some from the Genovese crime family and others from the Lucchese. So, you know, could there have been more? Yes. Every other case I ever worked, Gary, and as you know, this being law enforcement is that we work our way up. Yeah. So here I am. There's no threat on my life. There is no compromise of me. Joe Pistone was given six years. I'm given two and a half years. Yeah. So let me continue. And I know that the more, I mean, just think of the scenarios. Look, I got a guy in Florida who's having an issue. Flush out some of those guys. I got a guy in Philly. Flush out those guys. Guy in Kansas City. And he, because Greg De Palma being the Gambino crime family, powerful old Gambino crime family, would set up these meetings and we not only would identify, but also see what kind of criminal conspiracy we can get. But they instead opted to just call it a day. But you know what? I read and dwell on it. I, of course, wrote about it in my book, had those discussions about it, and then I just went on and worked my other cases. It was disappointing. I hope one day there is going to be an undercover agent who is, I mean, they had Joe Pistone and myself. We were both proposed for membership. I hope somebody is proposed one of these days and is able to accomplish what I think Joe and I wanted to do, and that's take down more than 32 people, a whole slew of more guys. Yeah, yeah, because Joe even, they sent him out to Milwaukee to handle a deal. And, you know, they're so interconnected. I think people don't really realize, your normal citizen doesn't realize they really are connected between the cities and they really do know each other from being in prison together. I've got this guy that he's kind of loosely connected. He's an associate, I would say, here in Kansas City. He goes in the penitentiary system. He's down in Springfield at the 
hospital down there, and you mentioned the pizza connection. Well, this Gaetano Badalamente, the Sicilian kind of overlord, shall we say, and on the Sicilian side of that narcotics connection, had been arrested and was down at Springfield, and he gets a call from a guy he knows in Kansas City who's not a made guy, but a fixer kind of a guy, and says, hey, this guy's coming in. He's Sicilian. Here's what his name is. Here's what he looks like. You got to take care of him. And so Badalamente gets in and he, you know, tells him how, here's how you use a commissary and here's how you do this and here's how you do that. Now, and this is Kansas City, you know, helping a Sicilian out that was part of the pizza connection. So the connections are unbelievable. If you got in as high as you're talking about getting, you could really do some good in a variety of different cities. Well, and exactly, that's kind of what really hurt the most. Again, not to me, but those involved in the investigation that this decision was a bit short-sighted. Because, I mean, you could go into, and even in this area, of course, Philadelphia, you have the Elizabeth crew, you have all of these other families just within the area, as well as throughout the nation, that Greg could have. Because keep in mind, Greg, interesting thing about Greg, when I was with him, he was more like, and that's Greg De Palma, he was more like a celebrity gangster. And the reason for that is people recognize him. Many times we went out to dinner. These are successful business people, affluent people who come to the table to shake his hand and reminisce about the Westchester Premier Theater. And they would talk about, oh, Greg, I was there. It was the best time we had. I took my wife on a date. And Greg De Palma, and this is what I love about the gangsters, man. It just never miss opportunity. Oh, yeah, what are you doing? So the guy would say, oh, I'm doing this. Oh, yeah, let me have your business card. And as he's reading that business card, his mind is going, well, how do I get in this guy's pockets? Yeah. You know? yes. And I'm sitting there eating and I'm going, run for the hills. What is wrong with you? Get away. This guy is. And they would be all flattering about the story. And Greg used to amass like a whole thing of business cards by the end of the day because he was so well known for what he had back then. I mean, he was, he really had an amazing place. I mean, you talk about everyone, the who's who, and that's where that famous photograph showed up, where it was in the Senate hearing with Frank and Carlo Gambino, Paul Castellano, and uh, Frank Sinatra's arm is draped over Greg De Palma. So this is, it's fascinating that they would do that. And to think about how that place went bankrupt, they were, Greg used to tell me stories that they would sell out this dinner theater, so to speak. And then the day of the performance, they would put folding chairs in the front. So let's say you think, boy, I got oh, yeah. row A, seat one. I'm going, I'm in the front seat. I'm watching Frank. And all of a sudden you get there, you're like row 15 now because you got all these other rows that were all cash. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it, it's like I, I would be fast. I would go with him once to Rochester, big and tall, right? We were yeah. in the city, and he's going, come on, Jack. Was going, so I'm in this expensive big man shop. I'm looking at this coast. I go, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. And then I see Greg just taking ties and slipping it down his shirt. <laughs> I go, what are you doing? He goes, what do you mean what I'm doing? I says, I'll pay for that. I'll give me the tie. What, are you crazy? No, the hell with these guys. He walks out of there like stuffed Santa Claus of stolen merchandise. And it was because this is what they do. Yeah. It's the thought of getting over, being a criminal, and it never ends. But it was 
was a wild ride with Craig. People always ask me, did I get along with the guy? No, I disliked him. I disliked him because no matter what he did, it was all about making money for himself and the Gambino crime family. What pained me about Greg De Palma was that his son was at that nursing home. Now, to go back, his son, Craig, was also a made guy that was in John Gotti Jr.'s crew. Mm -hmm. And when they got arrested for the scores case and for the gold strip club in Atlanta, supposedly he cooperated. And Greg found out about that while in prison and navigated that system because he was a master at corrupting guards Mm -hmm. and somehow arranged the meeting. And he just berated his son, a disgrace to not only the, the Palma name, but also to the Gambino crime family. And then the next day, Craig De Palma is found hanging in his cell. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was out there, got a compassionate release. And at first, you would always think like, okay, this must be a scam. Like all the mobsters show up like at my trial, they're all feeble and hurt. When I went to see him, my heart broke. I mean, the guy was at a vegetated coma. And, of course, Greg had round-the-clock nursing. He had it all fixed up. And sometimes he would talk to them as if it was bizarre. Hey, Craig, I want you to meet Jackie Boy. And he would have music for him. He was a loving father when I saw that. And sometimes I would wonder to myself, are you loving this because he's your son or a Gambino? Because Greg De Palma in my book was true Cosa Nostra. Now, yes, he talked a lot, but he never took a plea. The only time he took a plea was because he was ordered in the Golden Scores case. Even in our case, he was the only one who took, who went to trial. Right. Arnold Scutieri said, everybody wants to be a global plea. That's how the prosecutors want. Everybody pleads out on the global plea. Greg De Palma said no. He took it to trial just like he did with the Nicola Sorsa tape about killing the guy in prison with yeah, hiring yeah. the men. He went to trial. And who thinks like that? That was John Gotti. John mm-hmm. Gotti was famous for saying, even if they see a steeple coming out of your ass, you're never <laughs> going to admit that you robbed the church. You know? <laughs> that's well, a good one. <laughs> well, that's, that was Greg De Palma as well. He thought, and that's when I say he lived Cousin Ostra. He didn't go out there and cooperate Yes, could he have cooperated? Absolutely. He could have given up everything with us, but he chose to take it up. And yeah. also, when, by the way, when we were out there early on, not only did we have the La Sorsa, once we overcame that La Sorsa attempted it, then we had the situation with some gangsters backed away from Greg solely because his son had cooperated. But Greg was on this campaign to tell people that he did not cooperate that's all a lie created by the FBI. But listen, documents don't lie. Yeah. So those documents kind of sealed it. So, but classic, he was loved by some old timers. One guy that we would see, it was Rudy Santabello. And Rudy Santabello was a Genovese captain who was also the guy, if you remember the movie uh, Serpico, yeah. when he climbs upstairs and this guy, this uh, money guy, is goofing off with the cops, and then he goes crazy. He's a cop, oh, yeah. cop killer. Well, Rudy was a cop killer. 
served, I think, 17 years. The Supreme Court overturned that, and he came out back to the life of being a, <laughs> a captain. And him and Greg were very tight. So there were guys who disliked them more the newer guys than the older guys. Hmm, interesting. You know, you talk about that scores case. I interviewed Michael DeLeonardo a few months ago, and he ended up turning on uh, several people out of that case. Broke his heart, too. He told me, he said, this is the hardest thing I ever had to do. It broke my heart. He said, if I had to do it over again, I may not have done it. But what happened is he was in jail, and the action he had going out there, like he owned a tattoo parlor, because Peter Gotti was kind of in charge at the time, and, and he was saying when people go by and getting money, but not getting any to Michael's wife or his family. And that's caused him to turn on him. But uh, there's no loyalty in those guys when it comes down to it, especially in the more recent times. Yeah, I've gotten to know Mikey Scars. I didn't know him as he was on the streets. And I think Michael is a stand-up guy. Yeah. I think he's learned that lesson about that life the hard way. And I think, yes, he was ostracized for whatever reason. Peter Gotti had a hard-on for him and what they did to him. And he was loyal. That was the, that's, again, the fascinating thing about this life. I could see if you're being disloyal, but he was loyal, and yet they shun him. And they really try to mess with his life. And he did not want to cooperate. And then, of course, finally he did. And he did some damage to the Gambino crime family as well as other families. And I think he's, Michael has seen the life, but here's a guy who grew up in that life. So yeah. it's like indoctrination, just like if I would have stayed in Cuba, I would be sitting here saying Fidel's the greatest thing, sliced yeah. bread. <laughs> so it's what happens with Michael. But Michael at one time was even going to be considered for a concierge job. And of course, he, all of this happened. And it's a shame that, that the way this organization that prides itself this criminal organization approaches itself that, oh, you know, we're stand-up people, we're Cosa Nostra, we're doing... It really is, it's a fake. It's a whole facade. They turn on each other, they rob from each other, they cheat, and but it's glamorized. And that's what is so shameful about this thing. The way the mob is viewed in Hollywood yeah. is viewed like... I always tell the stories, like, I put away so many people in, in my life and all it takes is mobsters to make the front page news. And that people knocking on my door to want to write a book. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The <laughs> oh, cartels could own these guys to do their laundry for them. Yeah. They make more money. They're more violent. They're compartmentalized. It's not like when you work in mob guys, if you want to know where Joey Potts and Pants is, you follow him. If you lose Joey Potts and Pants, okay, let me see where could he be. Is Gumad's house? his mother's house, yeah. the social club. <laughs> or there. Okay, so as you know, they're yeah. predictable yeah. where if you take the cartels and they detect what they call la cola, which is the, the tail, they disappear. Poof, mm. they're gone. They'll go right to L.A. They'll go right to Kansas City. It's all done. And then when you arrest these guys, okay, I know nothing. And they really don't. Because they're told somehow there are so many layers. They're saying, go to this location and the intersection of walk on walk. There's going to be a red truck. The keys are on top of that. You get in it. You drive it to this location, leave the keys on it, and walk away. 
So you arrest the guy. He don't know nothing. What do you know? I was told to come here. (laughs) So the mob guys, we know everything they're going to do. And you add to the stupidity of some of these guys like John Gotti, where he has all of his captains show up once a week to the, (laughs) (laughs) come on, are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, but you see how they learn. They've morphed themselves into now. They're not doing the social clubs. Well, duh, you don't need to figure that out. You should have done, <laughs> you, you don't see cartel guys sitting together and discussing no. who they are. No. So the cartels are more violent. Look at the stuff that goes on in Mexico. Oh, yeah. That's insane. It Chopping is. heads, killing families. I mean, but yet the so-called mystique is always surrounds uh, the mob. Yeah. Personally, I think the FBI is making a great mistake and not treating them as an investigative priority. I think the mob as we speak is growing in numbers. I think the mob has morphed itself into a situation where they now learn that their way may not be working. Their so-called, like, mobsters should not be making headlines. They should be making money. So I think what they're doing is back to that so-called secret criminal society, they don't want these celebrity mobsters like Phil, uh, what's his name, uh, Merlino, no, yeah. or Joey Merlino, Skinny Joe, yeah. Joe, or these other guys that are walking around like, hey, look at me, I'm a mobster. Yeah, Things are changing. And I think that because the FBI went from seven squads down to three, we lost a lot of work. And you're losing a lot of guys that are getting straightened out. And a lot of things are, are changing that maybe in five years, you may see the resurgence of organized crime. I mean, what's your thoughts, uh, Gary? You've been in this business for a long time. What we see in Kansas City is they definitely are much more lower profile. And there are some young guys coming up that they tell me that they're working hard to get into like internet frauds and develop relationships with people that do that kind of a thing is the last word I've got. They still Them of the older guys will still meet together at this one restaurant. I got a report not too long ago that all four or five of them that were like, you know, up-and-comers when I was doing this and now are in their 65, 60s to 70s and still out of of jail, why they'll meet, but it seems pretty social. But there's nobody really watching them. There's nobody really doing anything other than on an individual basis. They come up with a crime, but nobody looks at them as an organization, as best I can tell. Everybody, for a while, everybody was just fighting terrorists. Even here in Kansas City, everybody went to this joint task force on terrorism. Now, backed off from that a little bit, and they're they're back at it a little bit, but not very much. So it's really hard to tell. I know there's still, you know, still an organization. People ask me in Kansas City, there still is an organization. They still have people. They still expect somebody, some people, to, certain people to kick up. I had a guy tell me about going into a business, and one of these associates came to him. He said, well, let's do this together. You've got access to that piece of land over there. And he said, but you know, we've got to kick 25%. <laughs> and my friend said, uh-uh, uh-uh, I ain't going into that. You go on. So it's still going on. Uh, and this was kind of that gray area business of strip clubs and this was a fireworks stand, but and that's a little bit gray area. And they sell those M80s and those bigger things under the table and have those available. But yeah. uh, Well, that's where they make the bread and butter in these gray area places like strip yeah. clubs. Because like in New York, for instance, if the cops keep called into a strip club for fights or issues, what happens, they could be declared under the nuisance law yeah. to shut them down. 
So what do you got to do? You got to kind of control all of that. And that's how they are able to hit those. But I think Americans have also, I mean, of course, the labor industry too, it's one of those where they could, in construction, yeah, you need concrete, I can get it for you at this price. So there is some extortion, but not as bad as it was back then. So they kind of mellowed out because they're, and also too, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, the mob has changed. Usually in the past, it was a way of life. Yeah. Now it's viewed as a way to make money and garner respect and celebrity status. Because back then, these were the old timers. They were, they, they, li- they believed all that stuff and they came here. And now you got these young guys who are working out in the streets and they're flashy cars and they're rings, the Michael Corleone type of thing. <laughs> but when they get arrested, they make business decisions as opposed to mob decisions like, wait, let me get this straight. If I cooperate, I get to keep this and I don't go to jail. Hey, yeah, where back then it was a different story. You know, it was like, it's something they believed. It was their life. That's changed so much. So the mob is losing that. And you're going to get, that's why in the old days, very rare you would have the cooperators. Now you have to slap them to shut them up. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Although I'll, Say this about Kansas City. Uh, Bill Owsley is a veteran FBI agent who was a case agent on the skimming case out of Las Vegas. And we've never had a major guy in Kansas City turn. Had some periphery guys who were maybe half Italian or were like associates of associates in form, but not really ever turn and testify. And Bill believes it's because Kansas City is such a small town that what happens is you leave behind this extended family who all know the extended family of the other connected guys and the actual members, which there's not, you know, there was only maybe 12 or 15 back in the 70s. But they had these big extended families. They all go to weddings together, go to funerals together. They go to school together. Their kids go to school together up at St. Pius, primarily uh, uh, north of the River High School, Catholic High School. And so to do that, you leave all your extended family out there being ostracized from everybody else in the community. So it's, uh, I think having been a smaller town, maybe it might have helped a little bit as far as uh, not talking. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's such a family-oriented thing, as you know. It's like, I mean, that's what's so interesting about it. These guys go out and commit huge, big criminal conspiracies, crimes that take some thought, some planning, and ability to make connections and put things together and keep track of different pieces. And then they go home and they have a wife and a bunch of kids and and they all go to church and and the kids all go to the uh, parochial schools and they may have a, probably have a girlfriend, but that's all, you know, it's all, as you say, predictable. And you know about where they're going to be. And it's just like they go in, get up about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning and go out and go to work and be home you know, maybe at two or three in the morning, maybe four in the morning, and, and then get back up and do the same thing again the next day. Yeah. It's crazy. I know. And in some areas, they're revered. I mean, if you are, yeah. everybody's, how many times you hear this story? The guy goes, oh, yeah, he's a connected guy. Yeah. Like, ooh, oh, yeah, he's yeah, connected. Oh, yeah. He's connected. Ooh. You can't do that. Oh, yeah. wow. Or the <laughs> things like, hey, we buy it off the back of the truck. Yeah. Or I'm going to call this guy. There is some kind of like in these neighborhoods of disrespect for these criminals because they get things done. It's like, it was funny. What kind of, I get a kick out. I was working in the bureau 
when I wanted to buy something to sell to the mobster, to say a TV, because we didn't have it on our on forfeiture and they needed it, like, for instance, Arnold Scuteri wanted a plasma. Yeah. So in the bureau, you have to sign, as you know, requisition <laughs> yeah. 35 approvals, yeah. stamping, this guy, go see this guy. You know, where the wise guy, <laughs> right, the wise guys, you pick up the phone, he goes, and the guy goes, yeah, how many you need? <laughs> so the way the streets work and the way the August, so I could see how in that world is always done like, Things people buying things that fall in the back of the trucks all day long, as if that's an innocent thing. <laughs> but you know, and, re, and just going back on that TV thing, a funny story. You'll like this, Gary. When I gave Arnold Scutieri the television, the plasma TV that I supposedly got through my connections, right? The next day on TV, The Sopranos aired the episode with Robert Loggia when he mm-hmm. comes out of prison and oh, he's yeah. smacking people. Remember that? Yeah. And that was some conforming with the way Tony Soprano wanted Adidas. This guy was like threatening. He was a freaking loose cannon. So he says, hey, look, we got to do something with this guy. So they set him up and they said that they had TVs in the garage. Yeah. So the next scene, you see Robin Loge in the prison car, right, leaving. Well, who watches that show that night is none other than Arnold Scutieri. So I get a phone call from Greg the Bomb about three o'clock in the morning. Of course, I got to pick up the phone. And he says, Jackie boy, I need to see you right away. I'm going, what the hell is this? So now me getting up at three o'clock in the morning, it's not like me getting in the car. I got to set up everybody. You know what I mean? Hey, guys, I need you. We got something brewing, you know, which, of course, doesn't well received at three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) So you get there like at four o'clock in the morning, you know. Yeah, what's up, Greg? He goes, where'd you get that TV? He says, when I get that TV, you know. He says, no way, is it stolen? I go, you got to be kidding me, right? So he goes, yeah, it's stolen for my guys. He goes, I knew it. I said, you're not going to believe this shit I had to go through today with Robert. We had to go in to the boss's house and take that fucking TV out of there because he <laughs> said he was going to get arrested for that. Now, this is life imitating art Yeah, right in great. front of you. He took his TV, and I could picture Arnold Scutieri going from a beautiful plasma to a little black and white with the rabbit antennas and the cordon. But I'm telling you, so they, yes, they were watching that show, and this is what wow. happened. We never brought him back to TV, but it was like funny. Like, you got to be kidding me. This is not really happening, but it happened as clear That's as That's a day. good one. That's a good one. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, we've been here over an hour now. This has been a great show, Jack. I really appreciate you going into those details now. All you guys out there, get this book because I know he's talked a lot, but it's just that's just a small segment of what he goes into in his book. I mean, he's got corrupt policemen, and we didn't even get down into that aspect of it. He's got drug dealers out the kazoo. He was Spanish-speaking agent in the middle of the cocaine cowboy days down there in Florida. There was... I mean, that was like the Wild West down there. So uh, you're lucky that you didn't get caught in a crossfire or something. <laughs> so, Jack, I appreciate you being here. And I will I'll let you get on about your business. Thank you, Gary. Any one last thing you'd like to say? No, I just said thank you for the invitation. I heard some great things about you. And you got a great reputation as well. And I wish you all the success. Yeah, thank you. You know, we work real well with the FBI here in Kansas City. Every local police department doesn't do that. Yeah. 
<laughs> but we worked very hand in glove with them in my unit particularly. All right. Yeah, All right, thank you. All the best. Stay bye. safe. Okay, you too. Okay. okay, bye. I thank you for listening and supporting Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If you want some more connection to the show, find my private Facebook group called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. I only admit podcast listeners. Have a public page, Twitter feed, and Instagram all under Gangland Wire. Or you can email me at ganglandwire at gmail.com. As a lot of you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. On the shop page, you'll find a donate button to support the podcast. Now, I realize that some of you may be out of work because of this dang virus, and I don't want you to even think about donating. But for the rest of you guys, for $25 or more, I have different rewards depending on how much you give me. Plus, another way to support my work is to go to Amazon and rent my documentaries, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or encourage your friends to do that. I have a book about the Las Vegas casino skimming investigation titled Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now, that's a mouthful. I don't know what I was thinking when I titled that book. If you get the Kindle version, you'll get links to hear the actual wiretaps. Finally, don't forget you can buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer with your Venmo app at Gangland Wire. You know, recently I've started hosting some Zoom calls that are restricted to fans who have supported the podcast in some manner. Besides cash donations, some of you are helping by becoming editors on my Facebook pages and keeping them filled with fresh content. And if anybody wants to write short blog pieces, no more than 100 or 150 words, and attach relevant photos, you can send those to me and I'll put those up on the Facebook. I have folks already like Ken C. from Arizona and Basil T. from Dallas helping with that. And they have both been doing a great job. I really appreciate what you guys have done. Every Facebook page can use more and more accurate content. People out there are starved for good, accurate content. Let me know if you're interested. Time for my public service announcement. Right now, Gangland Wire is supporting PTSD treatment and recovery for veterans. If you're a vet and you think you may need help with PTSD, call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can text at 838-255. The VA also has a website with lots of resources at www.ptsd.va.gov. Well, as we used to say, I'm 1042. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.